My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Welcome to the Damnificast, a podcast where we talk about the TV show Damnation. We're still doing it, seven episodes in. Uh, I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Oh, hey, I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media <laughs> studies. I'm on this podcast too. <laughs> uh, and we also have a special guest this week, uh, Marika. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Marika Rose. Um, I'm a lecturer in philosophical theology at the University of Winchester in the UK. Yeah, uh, you might remember Marika from a couple of episodes that we've had her on on the Magnificast, including a pretty recent one. Um, both are very good and uh, are still like consistently ranked among the top episodes of all time. So two years of this podcast and Marika gets more people listening than we do. So that's great. Um, it's good. This is really good. <laughs> it's the Not combination upset at all. of magic. <laughs> maybe <laughs> um well uh so this episode episode seven called a different species very uh spooky title um as usual we'll start off just by reading the the wikipedia summation of the plot here and then we'll pull some stuff out so i'll read that through and then uh we'll ask for your your hot take uh matt and uh, marika and we'll get going all right Here it goes, in my finest thespian voice. Parked near a prison, work gang, being beaten by vicious guards, Martin Eggers Hyde voices his displeasure at Creeley's work in Holden. Seth and Amelia discover that a man named Tuck Tandy, I love that, tried to buy up both the Riley Farm and a fertilizer plant in a nearby county. When Amelia distributes the bank robbery money to farmer wives at the church, the murderous Connie Nunn and Brittany arrive, posing as the widow and orphan of a minor strike leader. Creeley arrives at a remote stable where he meets industrialist scion Tennyson Duval and a fellow Pinkerton agent named Johnson. Seth explores the fertilizer plant, discovering that workers there are enlisting homeless men for secret chemical tests on military equipment. Creeley's excursion with... uh, Wait. Creeley's excursion with Martin Eggers Hyde culminates in a staged fight between Creeley and Johnson for the Richmond's entertainment, during which Creeley is forced to kill Johnson. Hyde gives Creeley a new assignment. Creeley must return to Holden and kill Seth in order to secure his freedom. In Holden, a new banker named John Dyson strikes a deal with the Black Legion on behalf of the Duval family. Dyson will provide money and a machine gun to the Black Legion if they can stop the farmer's strike. The Black Legion unmasks uh, himself, the leader of the Black Legion, that is, revealing himself to be Melvin Stubbs, candidate for sheriff. Bessie is caught watching this, and she runs away into the dark cornfield with the Black Legion chasing her. Amelia reveals to Connie Nunn that she's also a widow and that her first husband was killed by a strike breaker in Harlan County, Marlin County, (laughs) Arkansas, the same location where Connie's strike-breaking husband was killed. Seth gives Amelia paperwork from the fertilizer plant, and Amelia realizes that her father's textiles company is involved in the Duval conspiracy. On the way back to Holden, Creeley sees the same prison gang of vicious guards. He shoots and kills two guards from the train, allowing the prisoners to run for freedom. So there you have it. That's the episode, A Different Species. 
Um, Matt and Marika, I'll ask you for your your first impressions on this episode, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, the show as a whole and and then kind of pick apart uh, what happens here. So, Marika, I'm going to throw it over to you first. Uh, what do you think? So one of the things I thought was really interesting in the episode was um, the section when um, Creeley is with all the rich guys and they are talking about God and how this isn't the age of God anymore, this is the age of science. Um, and it seems to me like there's a really interesting uh, kind of contrast emerging, I guess, between a, p- a particular kind of capitalist rationality um, and then a different way of uh, being in the world that is attached to Christianity, but in some kind of complicated ways. Um yeah, I have a bunch of thoughts around that, but that's the kind of basic thing I thought was really kind of fascinating. Yeah, that's great. Um, Matt, what about you? Yeah, I don't have as um, I don't have as many in depth. Well, okay, yeah, what Marika said's good. The whole thing that unfolds between all of the rich guys about God and technology are super interesting. We see like a a weird type of dueling conservatisms, um, one with God and one with technology. But man, I can knock it over how absolutely buck wild these people's names are how is there <laughs> calvin rumple but also tuck tandy tony toast has like the best naming convention in the entire world just like i, I don't know where he gets these from but they're so funny i love they're it good. they're good <laughs> i love how this episode though does kind of get you into the larger conspiracy at hand like you know we've had um some episodes about the strike we've had some character development that's been very good and we get more about it in this uh, episode too but now we see kind of like the overarching sort of structures at the macro level about all what's going on in holden county and like you know all these people that are at at play here that we didn't know about so that's pretty cool too big fan yeah it is it's a very like view from from a thousand feet kind of episode um All right. So before we get into more of the specifics, and I definitely want to hear more about that conversation, Marika, the the dinner, the rich guy dinner conversation. um, Maybe we should just get your impression on the show as a whole, uh, because now we're like seven episodes in. So you've seen quite a lot of the narrative. um, And uh, yeah, before we get into this one specifically, you know, what sticks out to you maybe about the the show uh, about Damnation? Oh, there's so many things. Um, I'm really interested in what's going on in terms of the role that Christianity is playing and where that's going. Um, I'm also really interested in, I think, I think a really interesting kind of test of how uh, politically coherent a show is, is whether they manage to give their baddies like convincing motives. And I think that you find that often, uh, yeah, often TV really falls down on this because, and I think particularly when it's sort of uh, organised within a kind of capitalist framework, uh, you just sort of end up with this kind of sense of like, well, why would anybody be the bad guy? Like, what could possibly motivate people? And people are just like pure evil uh, or their motives are really incoherent. And I think what's really interesting here is this kind of sustained attempt to give credence to the motivations of the bad guys. Um, And I'm not sure that it's always successful. I keep kind of going back and forth on whether or not I find it convincing, but I think it's a, it's a really interesting attempt to actually kind of think about like where these conflicts emerge from, um, what's driving them and to kind of give depth and complexity to both the goodies and the baddies, even though that kind of division doesn't really work in a straightforward way here. Yeah, uh, that's something that Matt and I talk a lot about, too, like (laughs) finding yourself suddenly sort of sympathizing with a bad guy and them not being one dimensional. I mean, there are some some one dimensional characters. I feel like uh, Calvin Rumpel, you know, pretty, uh, (laughs) pretty good cartoon, actually. I like that he's cartoonish in the show. (laughs) Um, But the yeah, the more troubling folks like uh, Creeley or whatever. I mean, uh, Tony's working really hard to make you uh, want to come around to him in one way or another. Yeah, totally. Um, even even like the the big bad guys, though, 
um, like the like Ten- Tennyson Duval, who also has a very silly name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can't get over this. You know, like his position is um, one that I definitely disagree with. And I think is in some ways, like just cartoonishly evil, especially when it comes to the like weird misogynist steam powered dildo. But um, at the same time, it does, it is like a coherent position that he has that at least kind of makes sense that that makes, you know, it, it does establish a motivation that I think is at least understandable. Well, we can get back to the uh, steam powered dildos and the um, <laughs> conversations about gone technology in a minute. Uh, before we get that far, though, why don't we uh, talk about the flashback in this episode? Um, I think that so it, it's kind of like the the B storyline to this episode, and it comes in a few different places. But uh, why don't we just talk about it as a whole? Because it kind of gives um, even a deeper picture than we got in the last episode to uh, Seth and Creeley and kind of like where they're entering this conversation or they're entering the show at. Um so in the flashback, uh, it starts off with like uh, Seth and Creeley. They're back in Wyoming again, like a decade ago. We get that nice uh, typewriter uh, font uh, uh, subtitle to tell us exactly when it is and where it is. And that's nice. But uh, Seth is just like laying into some guy's face. And uh, it's kind of funny. Well, it's funny in a really dark way in the sense that like Creeley and Seth both don't seem like they really want to be there. Um <laughs> I think Creeley asks Seth, like, you know, how much longer do we have to keep doing all this stuff? And Seth seems pretty tired of it as well. Um, there's like a knock at the door and Seth answers it. And it's a young woman uh, that introduces herself as Cynthia. And this is a pretty big moment in the show because um, we've heard her name and uh, we know that somehow Seth and Creeley are involved in her death. And Seth is romantically involved as well. But we don't really know what's going on yet. Um, Cynthia invites them both to church to see her. um her new preacher dad preach and um, Seth doesn't seem super thrilled about it, but he does go, he goes to church and he walks in the back and kind of whispers to Cynthia. I don't know what to do at church. And she's like, well, just listen. (laughs) Pretty good advice. I guess that's how church works. Um, And then outside you see Seth and Cynthia kind of like uh, get on more friendly terms and uh, Creeley rides up to kind of break up the whole situation. But uh, Seth ends up telling uh, Cynthia that he is interested and wants to be reborn. So we have this big moment where um, kind of like a, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's quite like a, a legitimate conversion moment or if Seth is just kind of more interested in Cynthia. But uh, this is kind of the introduction that Seth has to Christianity, which ends up being a big part of his life later in the show. So a pretty cool flashback. I don't know. Uh, what did you guys think? Did you think that this is authentic or inauthentic or what can we make of this uh, this scene? I mean, it seems to me to be part of a plot narrative that is gearing up towards some sort of sense from on Seth's part that that Christianity is uh, important, that it can provide some kinds of resources that he wants, even if it doesn't look like he thinks it's going to look. I'm I'm interested in because it because it, this is also is this also the episode or was it the one before? I can't quite remember where. Um, I think it's m- maybe the episode before where he sort of he there's there's a comment that he makes about sin. Um, I think after they've just killed the assassin, um, and he says, you know, maybe there's kind of something in this Christian idea uh, doctrine of sin. Um, and I think it's interesting. So the the thing that the the preacher says in the, in the sermon is that everyone has a good person inside of them. Anyone can be reborn. Um, but this is also 
again, just after the episode where they go and see the fortune teller and he says, um, you'll never be able to be who you are until you kind of deal with your past. So there's this sense of kind of what does it mean to actually be transformed? And certainly Seth seems to have kind of transformed in terms of going from being a union buster to building unions. Um, and I guess it is kind of is a question of like whether conversion is possible, whether you really can become one thing having been one thing. Um so it's kind of going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the rest of the season, I think. Yeah, uh, it's really neat that you brought up the the sort of conflicting advice from the fortune teller um, that, you know, your, your history sticks to your feet or whatever. Um, but Seth is trying to be part of, uh, or at least playing the part of somebody who's ostensibly committed to this really uh, transformative kind of Christianity. Um, in the sermon, there are a few things that also like rhetorical pieces that come back throughout the, the rest of the show. Um, you know, like God's body is a phrase that gets introduced here, which is kind of interesting. Um, and that's the metaphor that Seth uses for the union and uh, the church union in particular. Um, and yeah, that idea of uh, God seeing your, your truest self and like it doesn't matter what you've done. Um, that's the kind of thing that paradoxically gets worked out in the last episode between Seth and Lou, where uh, they have that conversation where Lou is kind of saying, um, you know, Seth, you, you sort of think too much, like you dwell too much on your past. Uh, and Lou put, you know, paints himself as somebody who's free from that or doesn't really remember it. Um, so you can kind of see Seth, I think you're right, Marika, to point out him working out the problems of conversion, <laughs> like how much of you are, are, how much are you allowed to forget and just kind of like accept that newness? And then how much are you trying to like atone for that all the time or, or being haunted by it or something? Um, yeah, I, I thought it was a really neat moment, uh, a really, really nice way to see Seth getting introduced to Christianity for the first time. Yeah, well, we'll see where it goes next and what happens to Cynthia. Kind of a bummer that we know she dies, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm really interested in in, uh, in seeing again how that plays out and talking about it because uh, yeah, I mean it's a huge pivotal moment of the story, right? That's uh, Cynthia and like who she is and how she dies is like this huge piece that Seth is still withholding from Amelia. So that's like a big part of the story that for some reason has not just been given to us yet. So I guess we'll see what's going on with that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, from there we can kind of, I, I think it's, it's helpful to break up this show in sort of, uh, some different chunks, right? Because, uh, primarily the entire show has taken place within Harlan County or, um, in, in Iowa. Right. And, um, and for the first time we see some of these characters getting outside of the town and outside of the strike and outside of the County and they're going in different directions and they're seeing different parts of like what's going on around them. So I, I like I said kind of earlier, right. That there's this kind of overarching conspiracy that our, our main characters are seeing different parts of in this episode. So I think it might be helpful if we can talk about Creeley, Seth, Bessie, and then finally Amelia at the end. Um, but uh we can probably start with Creeley because I think that's kind of the first, that's what happens chronologically first. Um, so yeah. Dean, do you want to talk us through like what happened with Creeley or? Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. I'm happy to Please <laughs> give you a break. Um, yeah. So the episode picks up where the last episode leaves off, right? Creeley's in this car with Martin Eggers Hyde, PhD. Uh, and uh, Eggers Hyde is asking Creeley why it's taking him so long to break the strike. You know, like he's in trouble. 
And he's intimidating Creeley. He parks his car in front of this chain gang, um, insinuating that Creeley is going to go back to prison if he doesn't get this strike all broken. Um, and there's a lot of interesting moments there. You can tell that Creeley's clearly uh, unnerved by it, like the intimidation works, <laughs> I think. Um, but also, uh, Eggerside says to Creeley that he's an interesting specimen. Uh, so there's some some really, um, I don't know, intriguing, like, confluences of, of scientific language and, and bourgeois uh, objectification of the world going on there, I think. Um, but what happens is Creeley ends up uh, going with Eggers Hyde to meet Tennyson Duval. Uh, Duval is a name that we've heard a few times, but never really uh, met him or anything like that. And Creeley finally meets him directly and gets invited on this uh, hunting trip following this big dinner. So during the uh, the whole like evening, Creeley meets another Pinkerton there who's also having trouble breaking the strike in St. Louis, uh, Johnson, the Pinkerton Johnson. And uh, after this fancy dinner where there's like a whole conversation and uh, Creeley seems to be, uh, seems to have charmed Duval with some of his father's wisdom about turtles. Um, after, uh, <laughs> after this whole dinner, Duval pits them against, uh, each other. Duval puts, uh, Johnson and, um, Creeley in the ring basically to wrestle and Martin Eggerside slips Johnson a knife, uh, to, you know, try to fix the fight and also to get revenge on Creeley. He's trying to teach him a lesson again and ultimately to kill him, I guess. Uh, but Creeley, uh, ends up gruesomely killing Johnson, uh, which is a pretty big, scene and he like stares Martin Eggers side down as he's doing it um pretty wild stuff yeah maybe before we go too much further into that though we can talk about I guess like what the bigger scheme is here because uh the hunting trick the hunting trip is not just because they want to go hunting or whatever but they're trying to like uh they're, they're giving like the rest of this group of like rich men this like moment to size up both Creeley and Johnson to see like you know who they might want to bet on in this future fight and stuff so it's very much the case that like these two like lower class guys are here for everyone else's entertainment like that's what's going on um and so you know that kind of already um gives some illumination to uh why martin eggers high phd is talking about creeley as a specimen uh or um why uh uh tennyson duval says that you know creeley is just like uh he's just a real a real masculine american man right it's like this uh moment where they're looking yeah i mean they're objectifying these two guys in the sense of like they're going to be the entertainment or whatever um and that's a pretty interesting thing uh I, I mean, to me, I mean, the, the language of specimen and like um, uh, the way they talk about um, Creeley and even uh, when they're on the hunting trip, uh, at one point, Creeley asks uh, Martin Eggers Hyde, like, what are they what they're hunting? Because it isn't clear to him. And Martin Eggers Hyde, jokingly, <laughs> I guess, says that they're hunting poor people. And uh, I don't know, there's like this like very class class language to it. But also there's a, a real racial element to it that I can't help but hear. Um, so uh it's pretty a pretty wild situation um yeah i don't know Any, anything else in there stick out to you all yeah i mean one of the things i thought was interesting was um so because you have this dinner party and uh one of the rich guys tells this story someone says something about what about god and his gift of creation um and the guy tells the story and he says well god gave me asthma my mum prayed for me uh, nothing happened eventually my dad rescued him and took me to the doctor and the doctor saved me and it's scientific innovation that's going to save lives 
Um, and I thought that that was really interesting in the context of this episode. And then, so you get various other forms of scientific experimentation. So you see the testing of uh, poisonous gas. Um, you see the creation of this uh, electronic dildo that is to make housewives more productive. Um, and I wonder <laughs> if there's a bit of a thing, a kind of contrast being set up between sort of scientific rationality as something that instrumentalizes people um, and the stuff that gets associated with um, with Seth, with Christianity and with unioniz- unionization, which is about solidarity and whether that's one of the kind of basic contrasts that you're starting to sort of see play out, um, whether you see other people as, uh, yeah, as part of you, as uh, people that you're responsible to, as people that you care for, or whether you're kind of instrumentalizing people and thinking about how you can use them. Um, and I think it's really interesting the way that that uh, the way they play out that stuff around scientific rationality. Um, you know, you have the science that does cure asthma, but it's also the science that is creating this poison gas. It's also the science that is um, creating a kind of class of rich people who, uh, yeah, who see other people as um, specimens, um, as uh, opportunities for betting, as uh, people to be kind of violently manipulated. Yeah. Well, there's a real, like, distinction between the the bourgeoisie sort of constantly throughout the show seeing people as expendable and the uh, the church and the union seeing nobody as expendable um i mean i guess you know some like seth obviously sees some people as expendable uh but like the the farmers and the union are supposed to to be people who are coming together and they even feel reticent about uh violence though they sometimes are, are willing to go along with it um, whereas, you know, the, the consistent sort of drive, I guess, among these, uh, the people at the dinner party, even, uh, you know, even the guy who asks, what about God's creation, uh, presumably participates in the, the hunt and then bets on them wrestling with each other. Right. So, uh, there's, there is a really weird, um, <laughs> a really weird, uh, uh, presentation of, I guess, the difference of how these two classes are also viewing human beings in general. Isn't there a line in the previous episode where I think when Seth kills the assassin where he says life is precious? Um, yeah. It seems a kind of nice encapsulation of that contrast. Right. I mean, he kills yeah. him still, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I think you're right, though, Matt, to pull out this, uh, well, it's the title of the episode, right? A Different Species. Um, it is a very subtle thing that comes through in the episode, but a very important one too, that uh, the rich and the poor are treated as different species altogether. Um, and it's good to like pull that out more directly. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the intention um, and it makes sense. Yeah. I think that you guys are on the right track. Um, it's just the whole, I mean, all of the rich people stuff is so, I mean, it is cartoonishly evil and gross and I hate it. Um, the, the fight though is super interesting. Um, I mean, Johnson and Creeley, they agree, I guess, that, you know, if the rich guys say they're going to fight each other, I guess they're going to fight each other. Um, so the the interesting part, though, to me, I guess, was that Martin Eggers Hyde slides like a knife into the pocket of Johnson as to like, you know, Johnson's going to end the fight by killing Creeley. But Creeley turns the tables and just like eviscerates this dude in front of them while like not even breaking eye contact with Martin Eggers Hyde, even in the least. And on the one hand, I mean, it is it's gross, and I feel a bit bad for Johnson that he got completely shredded. But um, but it is kind of like this uh, this nice not nice moment, an empowering moment for Creeley because <laughs> he's like you know locking eyes with his um, y- you know this guy who's he's in a very weird relationship with, and kind of like uh, sh- showing uh, in a certain sense that he still has power to um, 
he has some type of power, right? He can he can leverage some kind of power against him, um, even if it is just like brute strength or something. That Martin Eggers Hyde, maybe he has money and power, uh, but Creeley could still uh, kill him, I guess, if he wanted to. Um, yeah. Well, the uh, that whole that whole rich person dinner uh, hunting trip slash fight. Ends in a pretty weird way, too. Um, so Martin Argus Hyde, uh, well, Creeley thinks that Martin Argus Hyde is going to kill him or um, put him back in jail or whatever. But as it turns out, uh, Tennyson Duval likes uh, Creeley so much that uh, Martin Argus Hyde has to let it go. And uh, he um, he's going to send him back to Harlan County and let him kind of continue his work. But uh, with one big shift, and that is that Creeley has to kill his brother. Um, and that's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like doesn't seem like Creeley is super thrilled about that. Uh, he kind of he's kind of incredulous about it, but uh, he doesn't say no. Um, but he does look pissed off. Um, yeah, and then sort of like the end to Creeley's part of the story in this episode is you know he uh, he hops on a train uh, and just kind of like rides in the back. Um, and there's this kind of amazing scene though, where he's, uh, the train's passing that chain, that chain gang that he saw the day before. And he takes this, uh, this like sniper rifle or whatever, like a hunting rifle that, uh, Duval gives him. And he picks off the two, um, the two prison guards that are on horseback. And then like the last thing you see are these prisoners kind of like running away. And, um, you know, like we could probably read that in a few different ways but to me this seems like it's kind of a turning point for Creeley like um you know he's been kind of trapped in this situation and now he's going to take matters into his own hands and I you know I don't want to say definitively but it doesn't seem like he's going to go along with the plan to just kill Seth yeah I mean that's the impression that I get as well uh it's cool to see um the conspiracy again like you were saying earlier Matt through Creeley's eyes right because he's he's just had this uh, kind of wild experience in like a completely different uh, part of life, um, totally different class way of living, uh, but just like a different way of seeing the whole world. And then he has to return to this like very provincial small town uh, in Iowa. And it's neat because, um, you know, the the show opens with a, a pretty simple conflict. Like the, these people are on strike. These people don't want them to be on strike. And that's like just how it is. And uh, over time, you're you're finding there are all kinds of other actors at work here. And to now be given, you know, full like putting faces to names uh, and and stories to the kind of rumors that are circulating within the show. And then to see Creeley come back with that knowledge, uh, I think also really changes the way that you kind of understand the situation in Holden. You know, it's not just like some dairy farmers and some other farmers uh, banding together um to like get a fair price it's like people really banding together to unbeknownst to them actually stop like <laughs> the the incoming sort of industrialization like brutal industrialization of iowa yeah I, I think that makes a lot of sense too when you think about the i mean you know when we talked to tony a while ago he he said that he wanted the second season to be about uh, about the military industrial complex and uh, in this episode, we can see how some of those things start coming out for sure, right? Like uh, in the last episode, we saw some of the seeds of those, but now we see like directly how um, the military might be involved, uh, especially with Seth's side of the conspiracy. So maybe we should go there next. All right, let's do it. Unless, uh, Marika, do you have any other parting words for Creeley before we leave him behind? So I have a thought about Creeley and Seth together, and 
I don't know if that's better here or later on. Um, but one of the things I was sort of toying with as we watched the episode, and again, we can kind of put a peg in this and return to it later or talk about it now, is the extent to which the the relationship between Seth and Creeley, I think you can kind of read it alongside the story of Cain and Abel. Um, huh. That you have these two brothers that uh, essentially, you know, the, the reason why Creeley is not acceptable to his father is because he's not willing to commit acts of violence. And I think you can kind of read that as a sort of parallel to Cain and Abel, right? Uh one of them offers um, grain sacrifice, one of them offers a meat sacrifice. And, and I, I, yeah, I've sort of been toying with the idea of sort of reading this almost as if, you know, what, what if Cain didn't kill Abel? What if they both had to go out into the world and kind of deal with that legacy of violence inherited from God slash the father? Um, and it's interesting sort of seeing them try to work through uh, that legacy of violence. Um, yeah, and I was... Um, with uh the with Betty, uh I think that there's some interesting ways in which so I've just uh, published this thing about the women in Jesus's genealogy and I think there are some interesting resonances uh, there with Rahab and I was also thinking about um Ruth Kara Ivanov has a book where she sort of talks about the Jewish trajectory of the kind of messianic mothers uh and she sort of says that what you start out with at the beginning is uh women kind of in conflict with one another fighting one another and then you sort of get this eventual resolution with Ruth and Naomi where you see women working in solidarity and I just think there's some kind of interesting resonances there of this uh you know one of the things that uh we inherit from Christianity is this kind of real legacy of sort of patriarchal violence and the way that that sets us against one another and it's interesting kind of seeing how that sort of how the two brothers are both kind of working that out and uh, grappling with that in different kinds of ways. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, their relationship is so intriguing, especially as brothers who are also kind of not brothers. Like, they're not blood brothers, but they're raised by the same dad. Um, Yeah, there's so much to kind of pull apart there. Well, let's talk more about that for sure. Um, All right, let me just briefly introduce the Seth conspiracy, and then uh, we'll maybe pull that uh pull that thread back in um so really briefly i'll do a briefer one this time (laughs) after uh after the bank robbery of the last episode uh seth takes a bunch of paperwork right that's what we saw him pulling out of the the safe and what he finds on it is uh that there's a bunch of land that's been purchased by tuck tandy uh another great uh villain that's emerging in the show and uh we you know, we have some inkling of why that is, but Seth has no idea. This is kind of the first word that he's getting of these larger forces behind. And so he decides to get to the bottom of it by going to a fertilizer factory, which is tied to the um, the names on the, uh, the property buy-ups. Um, so when he gets to this fertilizer factory, he finds some armed guards and uh, he, you know, sneaks his way in. And he watches these uh, this guy get taken away, sort of like suffering inside the, uh, the factory. He doesn't know why. And so he looks around and he sees that they're basically gassing people. They're testing people with uh, it's maybe like Zyklon B or something like that. You know, um, that's a, a gas that was developed in uh, 1920s Germany and then did get exported uh, around the world for other uh, so-called peacetime uses. <laughs> Not a great way to describe that history, which is pretty wild. Um, and uh, yeah, so Seth kind of uncovers this and then um, he, he saves a guy from getting gassed himself. Uh, the scientist tells him that they're they're working for uh, they're working on testing the gas and how it works on military equipment. Seth goes back home, and it also gets revealed that the name of the fertilizer company is also tied to uh, Amelia's dad. It's her dad's company, 
Um, so that's what Seth is, is up to. And that's another piece of the conspiracy that gets pulled out here. Um, that it's not just the Duval family. It's not just Calvin Rumpel, the bankers being, you know, the middle players. It's uh, all these other interests converging in, in one place. Um, and Seth is, is not a fan. So let's take a minute to talk about that. And then also we can kind of bring more of the Seth and crew stuff in if, if that works too. Uh, anything really stick out to you guys about this uh, adventure of Seth? Yeah, maybe a few things. Um, well, I, I mean, just kind of carrying over from the last section um, about uh, species, right? There's still that, I mean, just like Marika said a minute ago, um, there's that sense in which the people that they're testing these, uh, the gas on and like the military equipment on are definitely like instrumentalized people um, who, you know, whose rights and kind of well-being don't matter as much as the rest. Um, uh, the, the gas, I mean, like, who knows the gas is like, nobody does right <laughs> but uh zyklon v is like a really famous example of yeah i mean um first used as like chemical uh chemical warfare in world war one and then uh just like dean said shipped out around the world for like as a pesticide um in quote peacetime but um you know uh it, it's not a stretch to think of it as uh being used as a pesticide on pests and also on um these like these poor people in Iowa or something. So um, there's definitely this play up between um, the rich and the poor as like uh, some, somehow like extremely different types of beings or whatever. And that's all pretty upsetting um, though. So, so Seth's in there and like kind of doing his thing and seeing what's going on, but he ends up, uh, he ends up like jumping into this gas chamber and saving one of the test subjects, which I think is pretty um important right like it does demonstrate that seth actually does care about people and he's not just you know those like dark the those darker impulses from his past um they've been kind of they, they've been i don't know directed in 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 some way towards a goal and he's going to save some people and kill other people not just killing them indiscriminately now or something so that was pretty cool to me yeah and i think it's interesting how it kind of plays in with the flashback to him going to church um and yeah the kind of transformation that he's undergone from um being someone who however reluctantly has been going out and killing people uh breaking strikes things like that to being willing to save someone's life um and it does seem like it's kind of pushing in the direction of suggesting that that is coming from christianity in some way i don't know if that's going to get kind of complexified um but i was thinking um I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting here, actually, is the way that Christianity seems to be absent from uh, the motivations of uh, the bad guys, except uh, with a bit with the, um, I can't remember what the black robe Ku Klux Klan people are called. Um, the Black Legion. Yeah, so the Black Legion, um, someone talks to them about the coincidence of business interests and moral crusades. But it's really interesting there that that is not explicitly tied to the language of Christianity. Um, and I guess one of my like uh, low-level concerns about the show is that it's going to end up sort of being like, Christianity is like, good and revolutionary and not really grappling with the ways in which Christianity is also kind of part of the problem. Yeah, I think that is a good fear to have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because um in in this episode we do kind of learn that like okay so in in the past episodes right you get we have seth this like sort of like uh communist pastor and i think the assumption on the side of a lot of the the other characters is that like 
you know, he's um he's a communist first posing as a pastor uh, to get people to listen. But in this episode, we actually kind of see something like the opposite happen, like where he is he kind of like engages with Christianity first and engages that process of like, you know, being reborn or whatever. And then out of that, he kind of has a um, a transformation of social ethic and maybe gets involved in, you know, communism or organizing or whatever. So I think that it's true that it, I mean, like, it's it's fine, you know, that Christianity might play that role, but it is also a problem that it doesn't play up the the other extremely bad things that could have happened. Like, um, I, I, I Christianity being sort of like the thing, the the only force of good or something, um, is troubling, uh, especially when yeah, uh, the Black Legion does exist as, uh, Christian white supremacists. Yeah, the thing that's right, and also because there's that one scene um, in like the third episode, I think it is, where it opens up with that uh, pretty amazing sort of uh, sequence where there's uh, they're all playing baseball or whatever on the on the farm, and it's the the most American thing you can imagine, right? It's like this idyllic scene, and then the the dad goes into the barn, and there's a black legion robe hanging there. And what makes that scene so powerful is it ties the white supremacist violence of the Black Legion to the American project, which is really good and effective. Um, but it does leave out the Christianity bit. So you get white supremacy tied to law and order. You get it tied to nationalism and those kinds of weird things uh, that all make sense. Um, but I think you're right, Marika. Uh, it doesn't sort of give Christianity um <laughs> the bad side of it there's also like no other pastors in town like where's the pastors who are like preaching against the strike all that kind of stuff you know <laughs> so i don't know yeah you're right christianity is a little unscathed yeah well, the uh the black legion comes to play uh, a bigger role in the story in the coming episodes so we'll see what happens if, the, if those <laughs> things shift um well okay that's uh so we've got clearly we got Seth they're all doing things they're exploring the the big the big mystery um at the same time while all that's happening though uh there's this like quick sort of like side story uh where Bessie is also involved in some of the um the you know she kind of becomes privy to the the things that are happening in uh, happening in town so she's uh working at the brothel and she meets the new the new banker in town, John Dyson, who does not have a funny name. And I wish he did. Um, he's, he's no Calvin Rumpel, that's for sure. So, you know, she uh, asked the new banker if there also will be a new strike breaker, because as far as she knows, Creeley is gone forever. Right. He left with Martin Eggers Hyde and she hasn't seen him. But the banker really quickly wants nothing to do with her, kind of fearing that she'll um, call attention to him with her with his superiors. So she kind of. Or uh, the banker just kind of shoes shoes her away, um, but as uh, Bessie walks away from the banker, she does notice that Dyson is meeting with one of the members of the Black Legion. I can't remember the guy's name, but it is the baseball dad from episode two, I think. Uh, <laughs> white supremacist baseball dad. Um, so Bessie uh, sees this as like an opportunity, I guess, and she uh, follows them and sneaks around the Black Legion headquarters, which is just a barn somewhere. Um, and she like spies on this uh, meeting between Dyson and the Black Legion. Um, it's sort of like this clandestine meeting in the middle of the night where they're all wearing their robes and whatnot. Uh, you know, like the gist of the meeting, though, is that uh, Dyson, the banker, is going to bankroll the Black Legion and also give them a machine gun so that they can put down the strike. Um, uh, he he says something to something to the effect of like, you know, as long as our um, uh, as long as our values are in line, you know, with 
as long as the the bank's values are in line with their moral crusade, they'll like help one another. This kind of like finding the sympathy between their causes. Um, and that's all very troubling. Uh, but then the big reveal of the episode comes. <laughs> Maybe not that big. Uh, we we suspected it last week. But the uh, leader of the Black Legion walks on, scene, uh, on screen and he takes off his mask. And it is the law and order candidate for Sheriff Melvin Stubbs. And he's there and he's ready to throw in with John Dyson and uh, put down the strike. Because, uh, of course, he's not going to pass up the chance to shoot a big gun. So... Um, <laughs> The Black Legion, they spot Bessie kind of outside, and she makes this um, pretty big escape through the cornfields and uh, makes it to safety. But she sees the whole thing happen, and they know that she saw them. So there's going to be some trouble there for sure. Yeah, um, so there's probably a lot to be said between the uh, between allying, you know, like um, the progression of American capitalism and also white supremacy. Um there there's a lot of that happening so i don't know what do y'all think yeah well marika you uh you sent us a a message when we asked you to do this episode um about some thoughts that you had about bessie too so i'd be interested to hear a little bit more about that like the meta thoughts that you have on her and her role in the show so far um and then maybe we can get back to the the plot here yeah so um so I've been working on this piece recently about the women in Jesus' genealogy, and one of the women is Rahab. And the story with Rahab is um, as the Israelites um, arrive in the land of Canaan and they're about to kind of genocide everybody and take the land for themselves, um, they go to Jericho and they are hosted by um, Rahab, who's a sex worker who lives in the city. Um, and she uh, basically helps them. She protects them from the city guard. Um, and in return, they promise that uh so she, yeah, and she does it. She kind of makes a declaration of faith in Yahweh um, and they promise that as a reward for her kind of helping them, um, she's going to be given a kind of permanent place in Israel. Um, and for a long time, one of the kind of uh, standard feminist uh, readings of the story of Rahab was a post-colonial reading, which said uh, Rahab is essentially collaborating with genocidal invaders. Um, she's presented as this kind of godly character, but actually she's uh, really... Uh, yeah, betraying her people, um, collaborating. Um, and a few years ago, um, a scholar called Avaran Ipsen wrote a book called Sex Working in the Bible, where she basically took a bunch of stories in the Bible that were about sex workers, and she did some Bible studies with sex workers to see how they would read those stories. Um, and one of the things that the sex worker readers that she spoke to um, picks up on, uh, that the kind of standard feminist post-colonial readings didn't, um, is basically that their argument was, why would Rahab be loyal to uh, the people of Jericho? Uh, to be a sex worker is to be marginalised, it's to be excluded, it's to kind of exp- experience violence and it's to do whatever you can to kind of save yourself and your family um and I thought that that was a really kind of interesting lens through which to view Bessie's story actually because um in lots of ways she seems like a kind of good kind moral person but she's also siding with someone whose first act when he comes into town is to kill some of the local people Um, and I just think that it's really interesting there that you know and then a couple of episodes in she says you know he's the only person in this town who treats me like a human being um and I think it's interesting because it it sort of uh it again complexifies these kinds of narratives that the the striking farmers are um broadly on the side of good and yet they also are forming a society in which Bessie is someone who continues to be excluded who tends to be continues to be dehumanized um and the ways in which actually that failure of solidarity kind of opens up uh opens up room for betrayal, opens up, uh, puts people in situations where kind of collaboration 
uh, is the sort of only route to survival. Um, yeah, so I just, uh, it's partly just because I'd been reading all about Rahab, but I was like, oh, look, this is really kind of a, an iteration of a similar kind of narrative here. Damn, that's a really fascinating way to put it. I like that a lot. That that makes it, I mean, I, I don't know, for me at least, I like, I always liked Bessie because, like, in spite of her siding with, like, the side I don't like. <laughs> but yeah. I think it, putting it that way makes it, you know, way, make way more sense and it's a lot more, um, I don't know, just makes me more sympathetic, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it also helps uh, throw some of the wrenches in the moralizing that you could kind of easily do in the show where Betsy is automatically kind of a bad guy, not just because she's with Creeley, but also because she is a sex worker and she is on the margin. And they try to complicate some of that by like, you know, giving her this weird relationship to the sheriff and making her like, I guess, basically one of the only black people in the city or in the town, except for like a farmer and his family. Um, And uh, so she's targeted in in a number of ways. Um, But I think that you're right that the show does try to sort of help you like understand why she's in the situation that she's in and, you know, why her and Creeley's relationship actually is like extremely significant. Um, You know, they're both of them are constantly going out of their way to like sabotage their own happiness with one another um, so that they can like basically keep surviving uh, in the way that they have to do it um, because of all these external forces. Um, they're like bound together in that kind of way. So yeah, it's a really good way to uh, at least help us as Christians think through with the Rahab story, how to like figure this out. <laughs> uh, well, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so maybe we can dive into what's going on with Kai Nunn and Amelia and kind of round the conversation out. Um Okay, so in the last episode, as we all will recall, there is this really badass bank robbery um, that I love so much. And uh, Connie, er, uh, Amelia and Seth now have a lot of money. So Amelia counts it all up, and it's $30,000, which is just so much money for these farm <laughs> workers. And they can use it to pay their mortgages. So that kind of solves the problem that they were facing, right? That the bank was going to foreclose on their farms, but now they have money to pay for their mortgages, and it kind of alleviates the problem for a time. Um, so Amelia uh, holds this meeting at church with all of the, quote, strike wives, which is... Um, <laughs> definitely the name of my uh favorite tlc show uh it's not sister wives <laughs> anymore it's strike wives um uh but yeah she just starts she's like you know there's some new benefactor that's gonna help us uh last out the strike and she just starts passing money out to people and uh some of the some of the strike wives are a little bit skeptical but they take the money because uh why wouldn't you in that situation um so after the meeting, though, uh, Connie Nunn shows up kind of out of nowhere, and uh, she hasn't been in the last few episodes at all, so it's kind of a surprise to see her. She comes in the church, she introduces herself uh, to Amelia, and uh, she says that she's there because she got one of the pamphlets that Amelia has written under a pseudonym from a striker in Kentucky, and that she is now looking for Seth. Um, because, uh, yeah, she even lets in Amelia in her, uh, in her cover story about her husband being killed by a strike breaker and, and so on. Um, but, uh, Amelia kind of just like jumps on this person who just like shows up. She's, you know, quickly, just quickly befriends Connie and she takes her to meet the other, the other strike wives and they spend a lot of time, um, with Martha Riley and Martha Riley even, uh, invites her to, uh, invites Connie to stay at her house. And that's kind of a big thing too. Um, the, the kind of big, um, narrative point in this whole meeting though, um, well, I mean, there's a few. But the the main one is that that Connie is uh, explaining to uh, Martha 
and Amelia about you know her her husband and how she's a widow because a strikebreaker killed uh, killed her husband. Uh, but then um, it's kind of like a, an interesting moment because uh, Martha, you know, she's like you know I'm a widow too. A strikebreaker killed my husband. Um, but then Amelia lets us in on this huge thing that we didn't know about her either that she was married before Seth, um, and that her husband was also killed by um, a strikebreaker. Uh, and Amelia starts relating the story to Connie and to Martha. And, um, you know, she kind of gives the details that her husband was um, uh, striking in, I, I can't remember where, Arkansas or something. And a strike breaker closed up the building they were in and set it on fire. And then he you know, was burned alive. And like, that's awful, right? But uh, as she's explaining the story, Connie's face completely changes. And it looks like she's having this, like, extremely painful moral revelation where all of a sudden she... Um, realizes that maybe she was responsible for killing uh, Amelia's husband and uh, that all is kind of clicking in her brain. Um, and I'm not exactly sure, maybe I'm reading too much into the face that she was making, but maybe like she was starting to feel remorse for it, or maybe she's like, oh, these people that I'm after are not super different than me for these reasons. Um, the, uh, the scene sort of closes out, though, when Seth walks in and Connie finally sees him, you know, Seth's the guy that Connie's been looking for this entire time, and she seems kind of stunned, um, there's this one shot that's like kind of from this weird perspective behind like a knife where uh, the camera is focusing on the knife in the foreground and uh, Connie and Seth are in the background. And it's kind of implying that she could just like grab the knife and kill him right there on the spot. But she doesn't for whatever reason, probably because there's so much for the people around her, but who knows? Um, yeah. And like, and uh, then Connie and Brittany, her uh, daughter, her, well, not daughter, but uh, kidnapped child she's taken care of. Um, <laughs> they leave with Martha uh, to go to her house and stay there. And that's kind of where the, the story leaves off for this week, but it is kind of a, it's, it's, it's good that Connie's finally back in the, <laughs> back into the story, right? We've had this long lead up to like what she's going to do in this whole thing. And now she's on the scene in Iowa. And uh, it seems like she's kind of at a crossroads where she has to make some decisions about what she's going to do next. Yeah. Connie is such a weird character uh, throughout this whole show. She doesn't have a whole lot of um, development in the same way that the other characters and other villains do. I think we described her before as almost like a force of nature in a weird kind of way. Like, you know, she just blows into the strike and then like does all this stuff, kills a bunch of people and just kind of like blows back out of it. Whereas someone like Creeley seems more, um, I don't know, there's like more kind of emotional investment in the even like the the badness of what's going on. Um, and yeah, having Connie and Amelia in the same room, I think, is finally like a real uh, a really interesting way to sort of see Connie even being a bit vulnerable and like a little bit uh, on edge and not not quite as like put together as the efficient killing machine that she's been so far. Um, I think that's a really interesting scene. Uh, Marika, what did you make of uh, Connie throughout the narrative so far? I'm finding her really interesting because she's such a perfect villain. And I I mean, I assume with the way that the trajectory of the season is going, at some point we'll sort of get a slightly more complicated backstory. Um, I do think it's really interesting the ways in which she is... I mean, the ways in which she's actually weaponizing solidarity and care against the people that she's trying to harm. Um so there's actually, I think it's actually a really interesting kind of uh, exemplification of the particular kinds of violence that white women commit compared to the more kind of naked forms of violence that white men tend to commit. So she's constantly using kind of emotional labor. She's using children. She's using sympathy to sort of wangle her way into people's sympathies and find out what's going on. Um, 
yeah and I think this, it, the, the way in which he's kind of instrumentalizing gender to kind of do things I think is really smart uh yeah and also really indicative I think uh you know these kinds of violence that we see play out they're very rarely kind of directly committed by women but white women specifically are kind of always implicated them in various different kinds of ways and I think Connie kind of fleshes that out really well um I wanted to just briefly uh say something about um Amelia's trajectory because I think there's a point at which he sort of says to Seth uh oh did like did God send a bank robber to us and I sort of feel like there's also a bit of an emerging theme of a kind of elision a deliberate elision of God's action and the actions of people to care for one one another that the way that God acts in the world kind of is through the actions of people um I think you see that play out in the kind of the the parallels between the talk about uh the church as the body of uh Christ and the kind of the union as the body of Christ and almost a sense that how does God act in the world if anything through people but also specifically through people who are transgressing um and I think it's really interesting the way that um what you get is clearly a system that is so clearly premised on violence that uh there isn't a sense of uh, kind of obligation to abide by those uh rules um I was reading some stuff by Trotsky recently talking about um, uh, bourgeois morality and basically how it's all about um, basically getting people to kind of uphold the existing system and this sense that actually if you want to if you want to be righteous if you want to do right in this world you have to do things like rob banks you have to uh, steal the bank's money and give it out to people and that's kind of how God acts in the world. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, there's a moment earlier in the show, I couldn't tell you when at this point, but uh, it's um, Seth is talking. Oh, it's right before uh, Martha Riley's house is going to be at the petty auction. Mm-hmm. But uh, Seth says that uh, a miracle is nothing more than a moment of God's attention. Yeah. And what he means by that is like the <laughs> the union of farmers coming together and like, uh, holding up the auction and making sure nobody yeah. bids on the house, right? Um, so it's interesting. There's like these different ways. I mean, there's this way the show talks about uh, the intervention of people kind of engaging in um, moments of solidarity, but also illegality. Yeah. I, I like it. Yeah, the, the moment of God's attention is always also the the disruptive moment too, right? The thing that upends the, uh, just like the daily goings on that are happening uh, in the city. And I think that's a really fascinating thing, too. Like, uh, Marika used the word transgression. I think that's right, right? Like, uh, God seems to always be um, invoked in the show, even in, like, uncomfortable moments of transgression. Like we talked about earlier, that scene in the last episode where Seth shoots the um, his, his would-be killer, the mercenary, um, and he says, you know, life is precious. But he also shoots him after he was blaspheming, right? And he calls him a blasphemer for uh, trying to call Seth's bluff and be like, we're all going to the nothingness afterwards or whatever. And uh, Seth, like, <laughs> tries to, I guess, uh, I don't know what it is, like something, something like clicks for him. And uh, he decides that's like an offense worth killing this guy over. And um, there's a really uncomfortable way in which the divine violence um, sanctions violence that seems even outside of like the morality of Lou Nez, like Lou is like, why'd you do that? <laughs> like, what's going on? Um, so there's a lot of that, I think, that's really interesting to track. Uh, cool. Well, uh, I think that's the episode. 
Um, Rika, thanks so much for coming to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks for watching uh, seven hours of TV just to come on this podcast. Oh, I'm going to go watch the rest now. I want to know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Damnificast. Uh, we really appreciate your support and uh, the money you've been giving us on Patreon affords us a little bit of extra time to uh, spend on podcast stuff. So we really appreciate it. Um, we'll be back next week with episode eight and we're just inching closer every every week to uh, finishing this, this big uh, series off. So stay tuned.